Now, if you were to synthesize the teaching of the book of 1 John, we could say that John's primary aim is actually to communicate assurance to believers. His aim is that believers would know that they have eternal life, just as we read a few moments ago. This thread runs through the entirety of the book. And this may be surprising to hear, but unlike the Gospel of John, the purpose of the book or the epistle of 1 John is not evangelistic. John's aim is not to bring people who are not yet believers in Christ to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's, he's actually sending this letter to a group of people who are believers already. And we get that from the reading that we just had. He's writing to those who actually believe. You would recall just a few weeks ago when we were going through the Gospel of John, not the Epistle of John, which was written by the same author. In that verse volume, John writes with the express purpose that his readers would believe in Jesus. Listen to John in his earlier years. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And here's the important part. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But that stands in direct contrast to the purpose of this book, which in this letter is written to believers with the aim of assuring them that they have actually believed in Jesus. So that is a broad overview of the book of 1 John. And I just want to hone in to the specific context that we're in from verse 14 and 15, which we covered in January. Verses 14 and 15 could be considered a general guideline for prayer. Prayer must be done in accordance with God's preceptive will. What I mean by that, it has to be done in accordance with what God has actually instructed that we have to pray for. So in the Lord's Prayer, we would see that God himself in the person Jesus Christ says, give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins. In accordance with God's preceptive will, we're supposed to be praying and modeling our prayers in like manner. And obviously there are ways, there are various ways that we are encouraged by positive example through prayers of others to pray in similar manner. But the point is, we're supposed to pray not by every women fancy that comes to our mind, but it's supposed to be regulated by the Word of God. So that's what we were looking at in verses 14 and 15. But as we look at verses 16 and 17, John highlights for us this idea of intercessory prayer. And just so we have a working definition of that idea, intercessory prayer is just a simple way of saying praying on behalf of other people. And we'll explore that idea more fully as we go along. But perhaps it would be helpful as we move through this text to look specifically at the two instructions that John gives. The two instructions John gives is actually a way that he gives us specific guidance for how to pray in accordance with the will of God. So he gave us a general, a general framework. You need to pray in accordance with God's will. Well, John, how do, we do, how do we actually do that? Well, here in verses 16 and 17, he actually tells us two specific ways that we can do that. He gives us two instructions. And the two instructions are these. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. 
But then the passage goes on to say, there's a sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. So there are two instructions. One is a instruction to do something. And one is an instruction to refrain from something. He, he, John, affirms that we ought to pray for a believer or a brother who commits a sin not leading to death. That, to me, is very clear from verse 16. And we could say, at the very least, he withholds the recommendation that we should pray for those who commit a sin unto death. And that's a pretty jarring statement. As Christians, we have a default position to pray about anything. You stump your, your big toe, you pray. The wind blows too hard and rattles your windows, you pray. There are so many ways in which we just offer up prayers to God. And that's our default bent. And that's commended by the scripture. In verses 14 and 15 that we just read, we, we saw that we have confidence to bring our request before God. So that's actually commended. I'm not saying that in a pejorative way at all. That's what God wants from his people. But at the same time, the scripture does actually say to us that there are ways, there are means that God has prescribed that we ought not, or at least there are ways that God recommends that we ought not to pray for things. So John recommends that a fellow that you who are a fellow believer if you see a brother who commits a sin leading to death irrespective of whether that person is a family member or friend you should refrain from paying, praying for them and though it may be difficult to firstly understand and more to the point perhaps accept this idea Prayers to be regulated by the word of God. So whatever God says, in whatever way we're supposed to pray, that's the way we're supposed to pray. We ought to have our prayers conform to what God says and not what we feel. Even though we have this bent to pray about everything. If God says we ought not to pray about a certain thing or recommends that we refrain from doing it, then we ought not to do it. So what John is doing here is giving us a specific example of how we ought to be praying in accordance with the will of God. But that gives rise to the natural question of how we are to understand the sin that leads to death. It seems that we will need to first understand what that sin is in order to actually follow John's instruction. Of course, our first century brothers, they would have received this and probably automatically knew what it was because John doesn't want to explain what he means. He just writes it and just assumes that his hearers know. And likely this is the case because John is writing to people that he knows, not foreigners and that sort of thing. So our first century brothers wouldn't have been confused, but for our 21st century ears, we may need to have this obscure passage explained a bit more. So what is the sin that leads to death? that John, at the very least, does not recommend that we pray for. Well, there are several views that exist, and I will highlight to you three of the most compelling ones. We'll omit, for the purpose of this study, because there are so many views, we'll omit the Roman Catholic view of mortal sins and venial sins, because that is, in my mind, just a modern invention of man, so we'll omit that. And we'll also omit the view that says that a believer 
can actually commit a sin that leads to eternal punishment because well from John 10 to 10 we understand that God will keep all of his sheep so no believer can actually commit a sin that will lead to their future condemnation and hell so we'll omit those off the bat because those are just easily debunked the perspectives that I will share with you each have some nuanced understanding of the term brother that is used in this text, the identity of the sin leading to death, as well as what it means for the prayer to actually give life to the brother. These are key interpretive issues in the passage, and by God's grace, I think by highlighting these issues, you'll get an appreciation for some of the challenges with interpretation. But I do so just so that you would see and understand and appreciate that there are some things that are in scripture that are not alike, altogether plain. As our, as our confession says of the scripture, there is not every portion of scripture that is equally uh, clear to all. That's certainly the case here, and it was certainly the case to me as I was reading the text. But with that said, let's go on to look at the various perspectives that there are. Some commentators believe that John is writing about unbelievers in the midst of the congregation. In this perspective, the word brother, when we read the word brother in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, it is thought to be used in a broad sense. It's thought to be used in the sense of the brotherhood of mankind or a neighbor. A nominal Christian in the church would have just been considered a brother in that sense, a professing believer. So when John speaks about uh, those who commit sins not leading to death and sins leading to death, it is thought that he's referring broadly to brothers, those who are professing Christians and those who are not professing Christians. So the logic of this interpretation goes something like this. In the one case, a falsely professing Christian commits a sin not leading to death and the prayer is efficacious in bringing about the person's salvation because the term brother can encompass unbelievers as well. So the prayer is efficacious in bringing about the person's salvation. In the other case, the brother or the professing Christian sins in a manner that leads to eternal damnation. In this view, death is understood to be eternal death and apostasy is particularly in view. The primary challenge with this understanding is that the author uses the term brother throughout the epistle and it uniformly always refers to those who are Christians. So this perspective says that the person is using the term brother to, to speak about the brotherhood of mankind. So everyone is a brother. Everyone in the church could be a brother. But that's not how John uses the term brother in, in the epistles. I mean, we just read from verse 13 that John is writing this letter to people so that they, the brothers, may know that they have eternal life. So it's unlikely that John is referring in both cases to unbelievers, given that he has explicitly stated that he's writing to brothers in this church. So others have sought to address this deficiency. So that's one, one view. Others have sought to address this deficiency and claim that a believer may commit two types of sins outlined in verse 16. And just to remind you that the two types of sins are a sin leading to death and a sin not leading to death. Proponents of this view suggest that the sin in view is any unrepentant sin and it leads to physical death 
as a believer cannot obviously be condemned to hell so it would have to be some other some other uh, penalty or punishment that that believer is experiencing so this view says that you know the brother is actually a believer in both cases and proponents of this view look at the fact that John uses this language that is similar to the language used in John chapter 11. In that dramatic account, you may recall that after Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was ill, Jesus responded and said, the illness does not lead to death. This is admittedly very similar language to what we have in 1 John, and so it is understandable why adherence to this view considered death in this passage to refer to physical or natural death. Added to that, we know from the book of 1 Corinthians that there are believers who actually experience temporal death as a result of the sin that they had committed with respect to the Lord's table. They drank and ate in a manner that was unworthy. And so, as Paul writes, the Lord caused some of them to fall asleep and the Lord caused some of them to have diseases. So, adherents to this view think they have a strong case by saying that, well, the death can't refer to, it can't refer to eternal condemnation because actual believers are in view. So it must be physical death, natural death. And they agree that it must be brothers. It must, John actually must be referring to brothers in the church. And so that is how they interpret the passage. But we have heard, we, we know that even though the, the adherents of this view think that death refers to temporal death, again, it doesn't seem to be consistent with how John uses life and death within the book. So there's a principle in, in biblical interpretation where we have to interpret words in the same way that the author uses them. That's just an easy way that we can actually come up with, the, with what the author actually means to convey. And in the book of 1 John, for example, in the very same chapter in verse 12, John says that whoever has the Son has life. And the life is described in verse 11 as eternal life. But even earlier in the epistle, we have the statement in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 13 that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Obviously, John isn't saying that everyone in the church was resurrected physically. He doesn't mean that when he's talking about that. He's, he's saying that love for the brothers demonstrates that they would have participated or would have evidenced that they would have participated in spiritual life or eternal life. So I don't think that it would be accurate to surmise that in verse 16, the death referred to here is natural death. It appears that John uses this term exclusively to refer to eternal condemnation. But we've heard a bunch about what the passage likely doesn't mean, and that's not extremely helpful. We would like to hear what the passage actually does mean. So we're, we're getting there. I'm, I'm just pointing out to you some of the interpretive issues that exist here. I think the best way to interpret the passage, and you may have guessed it already by a process of elimination, is to assume that John's original readers would think that brothers means those who had true fellowship with God and with the apostles. And that's how the word, because that's how the word is used uniformly throughout the epistle. 
When the author speaks about the sin leading to death, then, it's likely that he has in view the sin of false teachers or antichrists who remove themselves from this community. Just for the sake of clarity, John isn't saying that the false teachers committed a sin that landed them in hell. In Christianity, no one can commit a sin that's going to land them in hell. As we read in John chapter 3, everyone is condemned already. So it's not a case where everyone is just in this neutral position where their fate is on the cusp of being determined and when they commit a sin, they then go to hell. That's not the case here. That's not the case for anyone living. As we know from the scripture, in Adam all die. Adam's first sin, Adam's first sin has determined the fate of mankind uniformly, universally. So that's not what John has in view. He's not saying that the sin of apostasy is a special type of sin or the sin that these false teachers did in denying Jesus and his person is a special type of sin that lands you in hell. Just to clarify that, uh, we are condemned already. Outside of Christ, our natural state is a position of being under the sentence of eternal judgment. What seems much more likely is that John is identifying the specific sin of a group of people who remove themselves from this community. And as you may recall, this group of professing believers were those who taught that Jesus had not come in the flesh. In other words, they did not believe that Jesus was God come down as man. They rejected that idea. And by implication, they actually rejected the idea that Jesus bore a sin, atoning death on behalf of mankind. What John is saying is that those people, those group of false professors and antichrists, as he calls them, these people are the people that one should not pray for. If you don't believe that John is prohibiting intercession on behalf of these people, at the very least, He's saying that he doesn't recommend that you pray for them. That's the sin that leads to death. It can be broadly thought of as a final and total rejection of Jesus and his gospel. And in this specific case, it seems to refer to those who have gone out from among them. And have demonstrated that they were not of this community of believers. Due to their rejection of Jesus, his person, and his sin atoning work. Their sin, as such, places them outside of the possibility of being saved. Other commentators have broadened the scope of John's teaching to include any sin which someone is knowingly unrepentant of. And that conforms generally with the dictates of this book. John says that no Christian can go on sinning. No one who is born of God can continue the practice of sinning. So he would, he would basically be saying, well... If someone continues in the practice of unrepentance and having been confronted, he's not a brother and falls outside of the realm of forgiveness. Irrespective of whether we stick to a strict application of the sin, that is what I, I actually believe. I actually believe that John's intention here is to communicate that the sin that leads to death is the sin that these who became apostate committed. They, they rejected 
that Jesus came in the flesh. They rejected that he died on a tree as a man because obviously if you don't come as a man, you can't die on a tree as a man. So they rejected that. And so they rejected the only possible means of salvation for them. The sin that leads to death is that they had abandoned the only possible hope of salvation that was left for them. So we have to wrestle with the sober reality that there may be in some instances such a hard-heartedness to the gospel or such a turning away from the gospel that intercessory prayer is not warranted at all. Not simply because it is futile, but God does not recommend prayer for such persons. As part of our desire to conform our prayers to the teaching of Scripture, we must recognize that there are circumstances that the Lord calls us to, that at the very least, again, call us to refrain from praying for others. It seems fairly straightforward for the early church to identify these specific people who were in view. They would have had an apostle there who could actually point out, okay, don't pray for him with infallible judgment. It seems pretty straightforward for them. But for us, 2,000 years later, we don't have any apostles living, contrary to popular belief. And so we can't make infallible judgments about who has committed the sin unto death. So how then can we make such judgments or should we even make such judgments? If we were to ask in the 21st century who such people would be, who would it be? I would say that it's possible that at least some modern false teachers fall into this category. And perhaps those who abandon the faith never to return. Whatever the case is though, there is such a difficulty with understanding what the text means that we should, as a church locally and as individuals, approach this matter pretty judiciously. It's a pretty significant thing to say that you're not going to pray for a person because you think they've committed the sin unto death. Uh, but it is a category that we're given in scripture. We can't say, oh, well, you know, no one can commit the sin unto death. I, I think that would be going a step too far and, not, and would not be in sync with what we see John teaching here in the book of First John. But we've spoken at length on sins leading to death. And the aim was in part to better explain that idea. So, we, so when we read the passage, it is clear to us. But explaining that idea also helps us clarify what it means to, for a brother to commit a sin not leading to death. A sin that does not lead to death is just any sin that is outside of the realm of a sin that leads to death. So I would say that a sin not leading to death is as simple as this. For a believer, it's any sin for which forgiveness has already been secured. Any sin you commit as a believer has to necessarily already been paid for by Christ on the cross. Necessarily. Or else you're outside of the faith and you're still dead in your sins. Someone who has been born again cannot keep sinning or apostatize in the mind of John because God's seed abides in him. This means that we can't, as believers, commit a sin leading to death. But of course, they, but of course, sorry, believers do sin. And so John explains that where persons do commit these type of sins, that their Christian brothers ought to pray for them. So what can we learn from the teaching here? I think that we should make a few observations. 
Firstly, notice in verse 16, if you look there, it says that if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. What we should notice is that John is impressing an expectation on the church, broadly speaking. He doesn't reserve this for the pastors. He doesn't reserve this for the prayer warriors or the prayer intercessors or any person who was designated by a title. This is an injunction or command that is impressed upon the church broadly. We are all to be praying when we see a brother committing a sin not leading to death or when we see a brother committing any sin to be praying for them. That's John's teaching there. That's one thing that we should be noticing. The second thing I think that we need to notice is that John seems to be referring here to sins that are of an external nature. John says that if we see a brother committing a sin, and what this suggests to us is that he isn't impressing on us an expectation that we would know the sins of the heart. What he's impressing on us is not that we would go about seeing or trying to figure out whether our brothers have committed a sin of pride or sin of lust or sin of anger or sin of covetousness or those sins that can't be outwardly seen with, with your perception. He's saying that you would have to see, you would have to be personally aware of such a sin. And to me, in my mind, that seems like the only practical way of being certain that you know that they have committed a sin. We can't pry into the heart and investigate and understand what's happening at that level. So realistically, we are left with observing external sins. And John's primary point is that when we do become aware of them, or a pattern of sin, or instances of sin, we ought to be bringing them before the Lord. The reason I say pattern is because it's possible, some commentators have said, that John is actually looking at patterns of sin. That when John says, if anyone sees a brother committing sin, is speaking to this present continuous form of sin. Not like an instance of sin, but a pattern of sin. So that's, that's the reason I say pattern. The last thing I want us to notice is that we should understand that interceding on behalf of brothers is actually an efficacious work. That's just another way of saying that in this respect, praying for the sins of other believers is a prayer that God will answer. As I mentioned earlier, death in this passage refers to spiritual death that results in everlasting punishment. The opposite of this would seem to be eternal life. But in this case, it's most likely that John is referring to eternal life in a future sense. This is how eternal life is referred to in chapter two and verse 25. John writes and, and speaks about the promise of eternal life. Well, something that's promised to you isn't something that you've received already. If I tell you that I promise to give you something, you haven't yet received it. So when John writes in chapter 2 and verse 25 and says, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life, he seems to be actually focusing in on an aspect of our salvation that's actually future, something that is yet to come. And so 
when we understand our prayers or God giving life to the brother through our prayers, it's most likely that John is actually referring to the final resurrection life that John has, that God, pardon me, God has promised to all believers. And this is indirectly encouraging. When you think about how low a brother or sister has fallen into sin, though you may mourn and lament what is going on in their life, God has promised to grant them resurrection life. Obviously, if they fail to repent, they show that they were never in the household of faith to begin with. But John's point here is that true believers, believers who know that they have true life, when you pray for such believers who are stumbling along, that we should make these prayers with confidence because God will grant them life. Sometimes having this reality in the back of our minds does wonders when we're approaching God in prayer. We see our brothers and sisters interacting with them day by day and are like, man, this guy really can't get over himself. This guy can't get over this aspect of sin. His brashness is terrible. He's unable to bridle his loss. He's unable to handle his money properly. There's so many ways that we interact with our brothers and see and experience them sinning. There's so many ways, whether it's sins of commission or sins of omission. There's so many ways that we see that. But when we see that, that John is saying there is certainty given to us that prayers of this nature will be answered, that's an encouragement that we have. Certainly there's more that we can do for brother or sisters besides praying. Giving them counsels and warnings and encouragements may help in bringing about full repentance that leads to life. But listen to these words of John Bunyan and think about them. We can do more than pray after we have prayed. But we cannot do more than pray until we have prayed. What he's saying is that you can't do anything like counsel somebody, give them warnings, etc., etc., and expect that there's going to be a turnaround of events until you have prayed. You have to get down on your knees and actually bring the person before the Lord with the confidence that John has written in this text to expect that there'll be some turnaround or to expect that there'll be some repentance that's demonstrated in their lives. So that's something that we should take to heart and it's an encouragement to pray. There's no need to gossip or complain or even to just wallow in pity about our brothers. Pray for the brother or sister that they may repent and trust that the Lord will grant them resurrection life. Which of course is not on the basis of our prayers or their own efforts, but is secured through the sacrificial death of Christ. So in summary, John's teaching is that every brother and sister in the church is called to intercede on behalf of brothers who are committing sins not leading to death. God graciously and providentially has said that he will respond to those prayers by granting brothers the, resurrect the resurrection life. Friends, as we see from the text, all wrongdoing is sin. In other words, every act of unrighteousness or every deed that does not conform to God's law is sin. Unbelievers do not necessarily commit more grievous sins than believers. Relatively speaking, an unbeliever could actually, it is possible that an unbeliever could actually live an outwardly more pious life than a believer. You just have to look back at the Old Testament saints to see that, you know, 
David, think of Samson, think of those people. It's possible that in this day and age that an unbeliever actually lives a life that's externally more con- in more conformity to God's law than theirs. So it's possible that an unbeliever may live a more pious life than a believer. The only sins that do not lead to death are those that are covered by the blood of Christ. And we are called to plead the work of the greater intercessor on behalf of our brothers and sisters. Jesus, the great high priest and mediator of the new covenant, stands before the thrice holy God, pleading his own work on their behalf. He doesn't say to God the Father, give what they deserve to them, they deserve it. No, what God does, God the Son does, is stand in the gap for our sakes, pleading his work. Look, look at what he has done on the cross, and he pleads that for our sakes before God the Father. He takes upon himself great and grievous injury to shield us from the wrath of God, so that we may be given a perfect righteousness to stand before the Lord. Even now, the merits of his work are pleaded before the throne for our sakes. The work of our great high priest was both necessary and messy. Jesus came into human history to jump into the fray of a sinful and disorderly world. But he did so for our sakes. Not considering the shame of the cross too great a burden or too lowly a task to undertake on our behalf. He stands before God for you, they're saying. He stood before God at Golgotha and he stands before the, the throne of God now to intercede for your sake. We are called to participate in a lesser work of intercession, but one that is both necessary and messy. It's necessary because God commands this for his people. God commands that you actually get down on your knees for the sins of brothers and sisters. Even sins that were committed against you. Those aren't exceptions. He commands that you actually labor in prayer for them when they have committed sins. The closer you get to someone, the messier it actually becomes. Church life is actually quite difficult when you're living in close relationship with people. It actually becomes increasingly complex to sit down and labor over someone in prayer when you understand with greater clarity what is actually giving rise to their sin, whether it is the lifestyle they're living or the failure to take certain steps to actually avoid sin and forsake it and put it to death. It actually gets harder. It actually gets harder when you may want to walk through them and with them in prayer and you encounter confrontation. When people say stuff like, oh, you're being too legalistic or you're being too hard or I don't see it that way. It actually becomes really messy. It actually becomes very difficult. The more and more it becomes complicated, the increasingly difficult it becomes to shoulder the emotional burden and mental stress of praying for others. Interacting with them becomes harder and harder, and being an agent of the freshness of, go- of the gospel in their lives becomes harder and harder. But think about what Christ has done for our sakes. He didn't consider being beaten and mocked for our sake 
to be too great a task. He laid down his life for us. And why, we, why I consider it a lesser work of intercession is because all you have to do is bend the knee and pray. When you think about how difficult it is comparatively to what the great intercessor does, it's actually ridiculous to think that it's too difficult to pray for brother and sister. It's too hard. Even when we think about the emotional distress that Christ was under, being under the wrath of God, the displeasure of God, we have to consider that it is a lesser work, a lesser burden that we're taking upon ourselves to pray for our brothers and sisters. He has done so much for us, and so it is worth it to labor for those for whom he has died, to labor for them in prayer. It is worth it, and it gives pleasure to our Heavenly Father. Let us not fail to render to him acceptable worship by offering him prayer in this way. By interceding on behalf of others, we display but dimly a measure of Christ's work here on the earth, which brings pleasure to our Heavenly Father. So do the work of intercession, full of faith, being mindful that at the end of your prayer, that God will grant believers the resurrection life. Lay hold of the promise that he has given in this text and look for that turning around of the brother or sister as you're laboring for them in prayer. We have great hope and great reason to have expectation. I hope then that you've been encouraged by this text. Certainly there's much sobriety here as we consider the sin unto death, but there's also much hope and encouragement here for brothers and sisters who live in a world that doesn't just have sin out there, but sin in here. There are going to be times when we're sinned against and times where we encounter sin, but we have a precious hope in the, pro in the promise of the scripture that our prayers will result in the resurrection life for one another.